Well, welcome back to the Effective Ministry Podcast, the podcast that helps you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your local church. I'm Tim Bealhartz, a children's ministry advisor for YouthWorks in Sydney. And today we've got a special presentation from two of our UK friends, Gareth Crispin and Robin Barfield. Gareth and Robin recently presented at an online YouthWorks think tank event. A number of you, our audience, have done some formal training in youth and children's ministry. And you would have dug into the literature and research that was current at the time of your study. But the academic field of youth and children's ministry research is constantly growing, which is really exciting. And these YouthWorks think tank events are designed to help update your thinking and practice and bring you into conversation with those who are at the forefront of this growing research. Gareth and Robin are both active in youth and children's ministry research. And one of the things that they noticed was the tension or the fracturing even of two different approaches to ministry to young people. One approach prioritizes top-down instruction with high value on teaching and leadership authority. The other approach prioritizes bottom-up discovery with emphasis on the adults in the room getting out of the way to allow young people to draw their own conclusions from their own spiritual and religious experiences. Well, which option is best? Which option is more biblical? Do we even have to choose? Might there be a third way? These are the questions that Gareth and Robin have been wrestling with and that they take us through in this presentation. If you want to be in the loop for future YouthWorks Think Tank events, you can follow YouthWorks and also YouthWorks College on Facebook, or you can email me at effectiveministrypodcast at youthworks.net and I'll make sure that you're on the mailing list for future events. That's enough for now. Here is Healing the Fracture in Youth, Children's and Family Ministry with Gareth Crispin and Robin Barfield. So welcome everyone. It's great to, to be here. Robin and I have been thinking about something for quite a long time. This idea dates back to 2019 ISYM conference and where I think Ruth was there, Mike, I think Patrick as well. A number of us were there in Durham in 2019. The ISYM is the International Association for the Study of Youth Ministry. And if you don't know about it yet, you know, do ask Ruth and Mike and others and, and do join the association. It's a great association to be a part of. We heard loads of excellent papers, and in the pro- process of that, we had a little seed of an idea that was planted in our minds, and that seed kind of like started to germinate, and then it got stunted by COVID, but then eventually became two journal articles in the Journal of Youth and Theology, which is the ISYM of Association Journal. And yeah, we want to present that to you today. We don't have time, obviously, to present all the details of two journal articles, so you can go and read all the details there. But really, in essence, the idea we have in those two articles, is that a helpful way to think about the landscape of youth ministry, youth children families ministry, I should say, is to consider it as a range between two poles. And those two poles are between top-down and bottom-up approaches. And we've called this healing a fracture in modern youth ministry because we want to propose that this fracture between two approaches to youth ministry, top-down and bottom-up, can be healed by a third way, which we'll come on to later. Uh, I just say at this point, we're, we're saying these are polls, the tendencies. It's not that there's two sealed boxes that you can put people in. We're not going to be that sort of clumsy. It is a range of people are kind of along that range somewhere. The key difference between these two ideas of top down and bottom up can be summed up with the ideas of ministry two, 
and ministry with. Ministry to is what typifies top-down approaches. So here we've got the idea that adults do ministry to young people, teaching them, leading them. Whereas the bottom-up approach does ministry with young people. And that has much more focus on journeying with them uh, as co-pilgrims, if you like. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, how it is that we've uh, come to the situation where the bottom-up approach has become much more popular, if you like, in the last 50 years. And to do that, we're going to have to think a little bit about sociology and wider theology. And then what we're going to do is kind of propose a third way by using the work of James Loder, a Princeton uh, theologian. As we do that, we're going to look at some specific examples in published work authors and thinkers where we can say, look, there's a top-down approach, there's a bottom-up approach, which will ground our thinking for you. So we think there's been a move from top-down towards bottom-up, and that's important to think about while we think about this, this range. Uh, and the move has been due to changes in sociology and theology. So right from its inception as a discipline, sociology in the late 19th century has had debate about structure and agency. Where is the action in sociological change and changes in social relations? Is it with the structures of society, institutions, social institutions and the family and things like that? Or is it with the individual? Does change come from the bottom up through individual change, through the agents, the individual? Um, now, that, that kind of dis you know, discussion has gone back and forth. Um, and since the 1960s in sociology, there's been the rise of the idea of the agent is where the action is. The agent, focus on the agent in sociology has become kind of most popular. And alongside that has been this idea of the agent um, interacts with the structures in a way, in a way of conflict. So it's, it's not just a normal social relationship, it's a conflictual relationship. So that's how things have become to be framed in sociology. Latterly, Anthony Giddens in the UK here has tried to bring together top-down and bottom-up approaches in sociology, the structure and the agent, through his theory of what he calls structuration. We won't go into the details of this, but he basically says, look, the agent is important, but so is the structure. And actually, they're an iterative relationship. So the agent isn't independent of the structure. So they do make changes to the structure, but only within the bounds of what the structure allows. But then the structure is changed because the agent has changed it slightly. And so it's kind of this circle that goes back and forth. And that's important for our ideas as we develop them later on. Now, there's been some very striking resemblances to these changes in sociology with the changes in wider theology. It's important we think about all these because youth ministry doesn't sit independent of wider theological or sociological changes. Now, in theology, uh, the change which matches, if you like, chronologically, the changes we've just outlined in sociology can be explained between the difference between the concepts of transcendence and imminence. Transcendence and imminence. Transcendence is that idea that God is beyond and different from, distinct and distant from the world. And imminence is the idea that God is close and near and involved with the world. Grenz and Olson, in their very helpful book on history of theology, say to uh, explain it in this way. The biblical God is self-sufficient apart from the world, above the universe, and comes to creation from beyond. That's transcendent. The God of the Bible is also present to creation, active within the world, involved in the historical and natural processes. That's imminence. And Grenz and Olson suggests that since the 1960s, that idea of imminence has become much more popular, leaving behind the influence of Bart, who had a focus on transcendence, movements such as the Death of God movement, process theologians, Maltman and liberation theologies and feminist theologies have become much more popular and have attended more to many more bottom-up imminent concerns. 
And we don't think that's coincidence with the moves in sociology. We think these things are linked and they're linked because they really both attend to the subjective concerns of the individual. So both the folks on the agent in sociology and the folks on imminence in theology really is linked through this idea of attending to the subjective concerns of the individual um, and specifically their freedom in the face of externalities, their freedom as an individual in the face of things that might kind of impinge on them and impose on them. Now, both the sociological and, and theological considerations we've just mentioned not only provide the historical backdrop for thinking about youth ministry as we are today, but they also help us analyze the potential issues and questions that we might have about top-down and bottom-up approaches. And that's because of the focus that they bring on the idea of the self. So once Giddens has established his theory of structuration, he then suggests that the individual in modern terms, now we should think of the individual as a reflexive self. This might be familiar to many of you, or it's very similar to the idea that Andy Root talks about drawing on Charles Taylor's work where he talks about an expressively individualistic self, or we might say the reflexive self in Gideon's terms. So this is really important because when it comes to understanding youth ministry, identity and identity construction and authenticity are central. Now, the problems we've got then is if that's the case, then the issue with top-down approaches, in summary, is that we've got an under-contextualization of the gospel. We've got an under-contextualization of the gospel because we pay scant attention to the issues of identity construction and authenticity. And that's going to be a problem, as we'll see. And there's also other issues following Amanda Hans Jury's work on the work of testimony in young people's faith formation. Approaches that are top-down might, might also overlook the significance to faith development of young people voicing their faith as part of that identity construction. Additionally, we might also, of course, miss out if we're top down, miss out on the perspectives that young people bring. But the opposite can be true. If we're looking at what the problems are of top down and bottom up approaches in contemporary context, the bottom up approach also has problems. As Andy Root suggests, the problem with focusing on the individual and their reflexive identity construction is that it places an unbearable weight on the, on the shoulders of young people to do their own construction. Or as, as Andy Root says, yeah, we're not ultimately made for self creation. Bottom-up approaches to youth and children's mission and ministry that only focus on agency have rightly diagnosed then the need for youth and children to be treated as individuals, as agents, but also they run the risk of leaving youth and children as what James Loder goes on to call, and this is a brilliant phrase, loose cannons of creativity. This idea they're creative, but they're like a loose cannon. Their creativity is all over the place. They don't have the boundaries they need. They've got agency and creative power, but lack the biblical theological framework, which stops their attempts at identity construction from ending in what Loder calls negation, we might say failure, and therefore despair. Now, Loder sees that there's four lifestyles that we might end up kind of entering into or encouraging young people into if we ignore what he's going to call transformation in the spirit, which we'll come on to later. There's four lifestyles, and they're equally pragmatic. One is achievement lifestyle, which is an orientation towards achieving. An authoritarian lifestyle, which is a preoccupation with power and control. Then oppressiveness, which is a latent anger towards an unidentified oppressor. And then a Protean lifestyle, which is a lifestyle of shifting perpetual identity crisis. Now, these four lifestyles bear more than a passing resemblance to issues that arise in top-down and bottom-up approaches that we've just uh, tilted at. We've got this idea that numbers one and two, achievement and authoritarian lifestyles, are very much a top-down kind of problem. 
So top-down approaches tend to be achievement-focused and authoritarian. Bottom-up approaches tend to be focusing much more on pressedness and protean lifestyles, those ideas of trying to identify an unidentified oppressor, but also having a shifting perpetual identity crisis. So what we're going to do now is we're going to actually look at how that cashes out in different areas of a youth and families ministry. I'm going to look at youth ministry and Robin's then going to look at children's ministry. I'll look at family and IG and then Robin will do pastoral issue of transgender ministry. So let's look at youth ministry. Let's see where we see top-down approaches that are achievement and authoritarian focused and then bottom up as well. We've got some examples here uh, that we might just list out. So, for example, Cosme's Reformed View, Colin Nielsen's Gospel Center View, and Black's Preparatory View. These models, and I can give examples if people want later on, they focus very much, almost exclusively, on young people as receivers of revelation, rather than people with skin in the game, agents of change, if you like. And when it comes to Lotus Four Lifestyles, it's fairly straightforward to see how that tendency can manifest itself in a somewhat authoritarian approach to life. Now, I'm not criticizing from the outside here. I'm very much come from this kind of background of churches. They're the sorts of churches I've lived in all my life. And there is quite clearly a preoccupation with the power and uh, the importance of power and control. The role of youth minister as, as pastor is paramount, set apart uh, for ministry. These aren't wholly bad things, of course, but they do have tendencies towards an achievement and authoritarian approach. Now, in the last 50 years, a youth ministry has moved to a much more bottom-up approach. And here we're thinking about people like Ward and Root with their incarnational ministry, but also the rise of contemplative approaches like Iaconelli or, or, or King's presence-centered ministry. I won't go into the details of all of these, but we can see very much here a process of trying to say, well, hold on a minute. Aren't we really needing to focus on young people? Their voice, we get that in incarnational ministry because it's a cross-cultural approach to, to youth ministry. We need to equip them to be uh, the, the agents of change or the missionaries to other young people. Or in contemplative, presence-centered approaches, focus much more on coming alongside people, not teaching them, but coming alongside them, being co-doubters along with them. And these approaches tend much more to protein and oppressiveness lifestyles that Loda identifies. I'll say at this point that Loda doesn't make these links. These are the links that Robin and I are making. So Loda doesn't talk about youth and families ministry. We're making those links together. There have been some kickbacks to this bottom-up approach, and we can think of some of the work of people like Steve Griffiths, Tim Goff, and David Bailey, but we won't go there just now. Robin, can I hand over to you just to look at where we see this in children's ministry? Yeah, absolutely. So take, for example, Michael Anthony's little book, Perspectives on Children's Spiritual Formation. And in that book, he talks about four approaches to, to children's spirituality and their formation. And there are two particularly that map onto this, I think. The first is the instructional analytic model. And the second is the contemplative reflective model, which we'll come on to in a minute. Now, Carson and Krupper, who write the chapter on the instructional analytic model, describe that this model as God working through the instruction of his word and human agency, whereby he creates an environment where the young person comes to know Jesus. So this has a high regard for cognitive thought processing and is characterized by systematic presentation of biblical teaching, emphasis on scripture memory and hierarchical design structures. Okay. So we can see here both lifestyle one, that is a high level of authority, the authority of, of the teacher, the control over what the child believes, 
And secondly, a focus on the achievements of the child and the rewards that accompany them. So scripture memory versus competitions, um, fighter versus, you know, that kind of approach to children's ministry. Now, the instructional analytic model is represented by the American product, Awana, in the book, if you've come across Awana. But in my research around UK models can be seen in these four products that, that I researched. Let me explain them to you a little bit. Um, Splash uh, is a Scripture Union product, which is a, a, I think Scripture Union is present in Australia, isn't it, um, as well. Click uh, is something that comes, comes out of the Good Book Company in Britain, but was developed from, I think it was called Under Construction from CEP. I used Click for, for many years. So it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's recognizing what, what, is, what are these products trying to do? They're bringing in the revelation of God. They're saying that teaching the Bible is important. Okay, which which Gareth and I would, you know, th this is this is our this is our kind of tribe, if you like. So so I'm particularly looking at the UK ones. Mustard seeds is a kind of online thing that comes out of a big church called St Helen's Bishop Gate in the middle of London. Go teach would be even more reformed, perhaps. They 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 make sure that churches that use the KJV can also use Go Teach. Okay, so so all of these are products that that have a high view of of teaching scripture. That is that there's an adult in the room who's in charge, who then brings to bear the meaning of the passage for the child. There is in in these particular products, there's no space presented. Let's not say that when they're enacted, there isn't space for the agency of the child. But but there's there's nothing in the product that says let the child object, let the child find the meaning for themselves, okay? There's no space for the questions to be asked, for the child's observations to disrupt the meaning of the session, or it seems even for them to be present sometimes. Yeah, so John Westerhoff termed this the schooling instructional model and was highly critical of this approach. Jerome Berryman described it negatively as the transfer model. Now, it's transmissionist. There's something that we want them to know. We're going to tell them what it is. Now, in contrast, the contemplative reflective model centers around the use of godly play and its associated products. Now, godly play works by quietly gathering the children in a circle. The adult tells the story with simple unadorned objects, then asking open wondering questions and affirming the responses of each child. So there's no set meaning in the text that the child is told what it is. The role of the adult is simply to keep out the way. Do you see how the hierarchy, the authority structures are flattened at that point? Even the circle that they sit in is a sign of equality. And the observations of the child are a key element which must be present. Now, it draws on contemporary descriptions of child spirituality. So here a child is seen as having a spiritual advantage over an adult rather than being inferior. So Rebecca Nye, whose definition of child spirituality uh, as relational consciousness leads the field. And she describes the child as a thin place where the mystical clue to the presence of the divine breaks through. I'm just going to repeat that. In this view, the child is a thin place where the mystical clue to the presence of the divine breaks through. Okay. So to teach a child a Bible lesson would be to control or manipulate the child. And similarly, Marsha Bungie argues that the New Testament presents children as sources of revelation, which would seem to stand in contrast to a role as receivers of revelation. Gareth, over to you. Yeah, 
Robin, I'm going to skip through family ministry and international church really quickly, just in, in, in essence to say that in my research, family ministry equates much more to a top-down model, a hierarchical model. And you can see that in some of the models there, the D6 model and family integrated models. And IG, on the other hand, is very much more bottom-up. And I can go into more details on that, but I'm just conscious of time and I want us to get through to Lola and onto our practical examples. Basically, this was part, part of my core PhD, actually, and, and so I definitely won't Doing on too much, there's lots of detail, but the family ministry models, and again, it's definitely where I come from in my, in my context, uh, it's a big amen to family ministry models, but they are much more top-down in approach to ministry. Unashamedly hierarchical, we're focusing on parents, often even the father in a gender sense, linked to complementarian theology there. And behind that sits theology, which is hierarchical, including normally a hierarchical understanding of the Trinity rather than a social understanding uh, of the Trinity. And, and as with top-down versions of youth ministry and children's ministry, uh, attention to hierarchy reveals this approach to a more authoritarian lifestyle, like a question of power and control. We want to be talking about how the, the, the children behave. We want to talk about the, how the parents discipline the children. Alongside that, you get the proclivity towards an achievement lifestyle with the language of training children, you know, training children within the, in the instruction of the Lord. That's the kind of lingua franca of, of family ministry. And, and let me say, you know, I'm a big advocate of family ministry. I am, however, as others will know, a big advocate of IG ministry, intergenerational ministry. But intergenerational ministry, when you read all of the people that write within that sphere, are much more bottom up. So Harkness, Alan Harkness, has got his four factors of, of IG, where he talks about mutuality between participants, collaboration, shared experiences, and bi-directional teaching, adult to child, but child to adult. And interestingly, a lot of IG people, a lot of intergenerational church people, actually were people from the children's spirituality movement that Robin just talked about just now. So there is this definite link with IG to children's spirituality, and which, which places them in a bottom-up approach. And so as a focus on oppressiveness and platoon lifestyles, that understanding of crisis of identity, but also crisis of, of oppression, there's definitely an, an inclination towards that. And often is a focus not only on the oppression of children within IG, but also the oppression of other marginalized groups, including women. And so you do see a big, a big move within that. There's a big link between feminist theology and intergenerational church and children's spirituality, actually. And I can give references to that another time. I, I can say more about that, but uh, Robin, why don't you just talk about transgender identities and pastoral reactions to that as a good example? Yeah, thanks, Gareth. So I think what we want to say is it, it, we're seeing this not just in the models of ministry that are used, but also in the pastoral practices that are the sharp end of youth and children's ministry. We chose transgender as an example of, of where we see this. In particular, I think I saw this really clearly in this book, Understanding Transgender Identities. Now, I know it's, it's four views, and I'm picking on the two kind of end poles, if you like, which is what we've kind of done all the way through as, as a kind of descriptive method to make our point. But so in the first chapter in this book, we see Owen Strachan. If you know anything about Owen Strachan, he is a highly reformed American quite strongly worded preacher and theologian. And in that first chapter, he basically says, the Bible says transgender is wrong. It's wrong and the church cannot go soft on this issue of gender dysphoria. The, the chapter is entitled Moral Theological Exploration of Christianity and Gender Dysphoria. And he goes through Genesis 1 to 3, the prohibition of cross-dressing in the Mosaic law, the different roles of male and female in Israelite society, the words of Jesus on divine design, 
the Corinthian call for faithful bodily presentation and the symbolism of marriage between male and female. And so he begins and ends with scripture. Scripture says transgender is wrong. Then the next chapter or the response in particular, which is striking, is from a, a lady called Megan DeFranza. And she kind of says, look, Owen, when I was at Bible college, I wrote a, an essay just like yours. And then I met trans people and it changed my mind. And I listened to them and it made me reflect on the biblical teaching and, and I listened to their lived experiences. And she charges Strachan with being authoritarian. You know, those very terms that we've been talking about and of telling people what to think. So hearing the lived experience of trans people changed her mind on theology and the understanding of scripture. So I want to use that as an example of the poles that we see, not just in models of ministry, but also in pastoral practice. Gareth. We can unpack now our attempt at producing third way. Our attempt at navigating a path between top-down and bottom. Our attempt at, as we've said in the title, healing a fracture. And uh, yeah, all along we're saying, yeah, we're not putting people into boxes at both ends. People are arranged all along. And Bobby and I have our own backgrounds that we, that we come from. But we're, we're seeking to draw on James Loder, who was Professor of Christian uh, Philosophy and Christian Education at Princeton a while ago, um, died in 2001. And he describes the coming together of these sorts of approaches. He doesn't use top down and bottom up. He doesn't talk about his children families ministry. So we are kind of using him for another purpose. But he does talk about these coming together of these sorts of approaches as a relational unity akin to the two edges of a Mobius band. There's a Mobius band on the right-hand side. You'll be familiar with it. You kind of look at the two sides and the two edges and you can't see the end of the beginning. And they are definitely different, but they also are linked almost the two sides of the same coin. Now, this approach maintains the mystery that is present in the incarnation, yet allows divinity and humanity to encounter each other without the mixing of substance. So the incarnation is absolutely key to what Loder wants to present, and it's therefore key to us as well as we're presenting our third way. We want to build on the idea that the incarnation is the blueprint for how the divine meets the human. So it needs to be our starting point. If we're starting to think, how does immanence and transcendence meet? How does God and humanity meet? Then the incarnation is going to be that starting with that blueprint. That's what James Lowe suggests, and we want to start there too. It's the pattern of how God connects to his people. Now, Lowe is clear that this incarnation, this way of thinking about how God and humanity connect is not symmetrical. It's asymmetrical. So not quite maybe as, as a Mobius band might look. It's an asymmetrical relationship because as Loder says, there is a logical and ontological priority over the human by the divine. So it's not a coming together of equals as if the human person had equal authority with God. Yeah, one is definitely creature and one is definitely creator. But it is that coming together, nevertheless, that, that asymmetrical coming together that defines, if you like, ministry and therefore defines using children's ministry and who will help us navigate a way through top down, bottom up that tensions that we find, because we want to be able to pay attention to imminence and transcendence at the same time. We want to be able to pay attention to, to God first and foremost, but then also to individuals and not lose sight of each individual as an individual. Are we going to skip over the real definition of Chalcedon, which is where we go for an understanding of the divine meeting the, the human, but in short, 
what Charles Stevens is getting at is the full being of the second person of the creative trinity comes into deep connection with a human person without there being any mixing or confusion of persons. Jesus' humanity doesn't suddenly become omnipresent, if you like. That's divine presence. Each of their full being respected, not undermined. So this is where we want to come to in order to connect divine and human, and therefore to connect, when we look at youth and children's ministry, children with God. Now, this idea of the incarnation, this brings together the bottom up, our experience of the world, which Loden calls science. He calls our experience of the world science. It brings that into conversation and relationship with the top down or our experience of God, which Loden calls spirit. So he's bringing science and spirit into connection. So science and spirit or heaven and earth or eternal and the time bound are brought together in Jesus as he's born of Mary by the spirit. Then this is the blueprint for how children and young people encounter God. As the mystery of God accommodates himself to earthly humanity in Christ, so he does when he meets each child or young person as an individual young person or child. This enables the person of God to be encountered and comprehended with, and this is important. So if you got lost in the sort of historical theology, this is the important bit. What we talked about enables us in this framework of using Loda, this enables the person of God to be encountered and comprehended without the loss of agency on the part of the individual, the attention to the subjective, what the bottom-up people are trying to bring in. But then also without, and this is equally important, the untethering of the self as a creature from our creator, which were the dangers we talked about at the bottom-up approach, the protean sense of crisis of identity or the search for an oppressor. It's not untethering the self. We're not losing the idea of who we are as created beings. So step one then is establishing a constructive solution uh, of top-down and bottom approaches, and that's to recognize the foundational theological importance of Chalcedon as a paradigm for divine human encounter. However, the question then comes to what exactly is going on? We talked about that as a paradigm, but what exactly is going on with the meeting of the divine and the human? How does the model of the incarnation, as stated in Chalcedon, give shape to God's action uh, with those who are in Christ? And that's where Loder's developments become particularly significant, especially as what, what he calls his analogous spiritus. His analogous spiritus. That's the way of understanding the place of encounter in the child or young persons and the implications that has uh, for them and their faith. James Loder's proposal of the analogous spiritus is that there's a unique aspect to humanity that's been created to encounter the divine. The analogy of the human spirit with the, ho with the Holy Spirit. That's the analogous spiritus. What occurs in an encounter between the young person and God is that the Holy Spirit and the human spirit become one in a way that two pieces of jigsaw might become one without confusion and mixing, but they become one in terms of a connection. Human nature, says Loda, is as wide for spiritual insight as it is for mathematics. It's a natural thing for it to do. The connection is not flesh, not corporeal in nature, as might be determined by the measurements of traditional child development theories, you, know, you move from one stage to another, a three-year-old does this, a six-year-old do that. It's not like that. But actually, it's thinking about the deeper connection that comes through the work of the spirit and the child. Thus, Loder's approach remains, you know, I get this word right, Chalcedonic or Chalcedonian, in this, following in the, in the theology of Chalcedon. It concerns having the mind of Christ, the disclosure by God of the mind of God, spirit to spirit. Now, that's not just theory. This isn't just theory. It gives us a shape to how we can maintain a vitality of the revelation of God in ministry, the top down, the transcendence, without removing 
human agency, pays attention to that subjective element. The initiator, God, and the responder, the individual child, are both involved in the relational unity that we wish to take place. Hence his idea of the mobius band. Now, we can come back to some of that theoretical stuff, but we don't want to kind of dwell on that too much. We want to come back to embedding us in practice. And we're drawing to a close now as we start to just pay attention to two ways. We've looked at ways in youth ministry, children ministry, IG, transgender debates. We've seen ways that, that typify a top-down approach and ways that typify a bottom-up approach. What we want to do now before we close is just point to, Bobbin's going to point to two people that we think typify, if you like, a middle ground. That's not to say that they know anything about Loader or our approach to Loader, but they, we think they do at least typify a, a middle approach, a, an approach which we think they probably would agree uh, with our thinking of Loader, even if they don't know about it. Robin, do you want to just take us through? Um, yeah, thank you. So where do we see good interaction between someone who takes the revelation of God seriously and the agency of the individual? And here are just a couple of quick examples. I don't know if you've come across Ted Turnow and his work on popular culture. He's um, a professor in Czechia, in Prague, um, and he's an American. And um, he, he takes this idea of, okay, look, the, the things we watch, the movies, the, the, the video games we play, the books we read speak to us. And, and therefore, we need to understand them. And so he's come up with kind of five questions around how you can interpret and understand what the world is saying to you and then speak the truth of the gospel into that. So you can see immediately how he's taking the agency seriously. Here's what the world is saying. Here's what you're hearing. What do you think about that? And yeah, but how is Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of those longings? So that's, that's the first one. And then the second one is a lady called... Rachel Gardner, who is a British woman who works at Youthscape, was, did some stuff on BBC documentaries on TV a number of years ago, and has written this really interesting book around how do we talk to teenagers about sex? You know, and so often we say, this is what you have to believe, don't have sex before you're married, et cetera, or, or we just kind of allow them to discover for themselves. And so her model is very much a conversational model around sex and sexual ethics with the young person where there is still mentoring and guidance from the adult, from the youth pastor, whoever it might be, but it is also letting them work it out for themselves. I think that's all we're going to say on those two particular models uh, at the moment. So to summarize, what we're saying is that, that the youth, children's and families ministry tends to one of either end of a, of a pole of top down, that is taking the revelation of God seriously, or bottom-up, that is taking the agency of the young person seriously. And we're suggesting a model, a theological model that engages the two. That is, God speaks, but we listen. There is an encounter, but the encounter is between two different individuals. Thank you. The Effective Ministry podcast is a production of YouthWorks in Sydney. We want to see effective youth and children's ministry in every church. One of the ways that you can help us do that is by letting people know about this podcast in all the usual ways, like, comment, share, and review on your favorite social media and podcasting platform. If you've got comments, thoughts, or questions for this podcast, you can email us at effectiveministrypodcast at youthworks.net and also check out youthworks.net for other ways that YouthWorks can help you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your church.